0: Hey everyone, in the coming months we're going to switch out some of our interstitial music and feature our good friend James Byer and his wonderful snare drums, Byer Snares. We're going to have a feature snare drum of the week with a good friend, Mark Beckett, and former guest. And we'll tell you what the snare drum is and how it sounds. And in one or two of the breaks during the episode, you'll hear a real example of the buyer snare drum in action. We'll let you know who the drummer is and which snare drum they're using. We'll also include links to the performances in the show notes. And, of course, we'll include a link to the website where you can find out more information about the buyer snare drum.
1: Is the Working Drummer podcast. Working Drummer podcast featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. <clears throat> Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast, I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Otis Brown III, who has been in the upper echelon of New York jazz drummers for two decades. He is a graduate of the New School, where his mentors included El Negro and Louis Nash, and has toured and recorded with many of the most singular names in modern jazz, such as Esperanza Spalding, Joe Lovano, and Robert Glasper. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We have new content up on our Patreon page. It is kind of a two-in-one lesson from L.A. veteran Steve Haas. There's a bit about the drumming side and a bit about the social-slash-business side, so I highly recommend you check that out. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer, and a donation in any amount gets you access to this and other exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers. It's all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at WorkingDrummer.net. So Otis has been on my radar for a long time, ever since I first started seeing him with the amazing bassist, vocalist, and composer Esperanza Spaulding. He's a super tasty and organic and generous drummer, and I've always had a ton of respect for him, so I was excited to finally talk with him. Hope you dig it too. Here's Otis Brown III. What's been going on with you the last few months? How is your, How is your life taken uh, taken <laughs> new shape?
2: yeah I mean it's you know uh, all work has been cancelled <laughs> you know um so uh it's just you know it's been a transition uh I have teenage boys um you know that are here sort of transition with homeschooling and and everybody being around all the time and um yeah you know navigating this pandemic has definitely been interesting
1: yeah so, yeah it is yeah, it is for everybody you know, we're we're hearing a lot yeah. of the same kinds of uh, stories from <laughs> right. a lot of drummers right. and a lot of musicians. Um, and I think another thing everybody's got in common is that they've got time now to tackle something, um, project wise. So what's, what's that look like for you? Um,
2: initially it wasn't, uh, it has it hadn't been music related. Uh, we built like a, uh, you know, both of my boys are at pretty serious athletes. So we, um, we work out a lot and our gym's been closed. So we did like a whole crazy building a gym in our garage project that went from like digging like a 60 foot trench and <laughs> running power to the garage and painting it. And so we have like a full on gym with like racks and platforms. Man. And, and yeah. It's crazy. So it's, uh, we're canceling our gym membership. That's we awesome. We don't need to go to the gym anymore. Yeah. So we found some, I found a bunch of stuff on the marketplace, uh, I drove to Connecticut to buy some weights from a guy. Like it was just a whole crazy <laughs> project. But it worked out great. So um very cool. That was like a uh, you know, we were working on that uh daily for a good three weeks, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, then having to get an electrician and the whole thing. So that was a, a family project, you know. Um I have been playing a lot, I've been practicing a lot. I started a drum talk series on Instagram. Yeah, right
1: I was now. gonna gonna ask you about that.
2: Yeah. Um, um, and it, yeah, just trying to do stuff to stay, um, stay busy, you know what I mean? And then the music part, like stay inspired in a way, you know what I mean? Cause it could kind of get depressing.
1: Yeah. You know? so, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so in, in terms of staying inspired, um, have, has that, has that meant going, going back to to stuff that inspired you a long time ago or or finding new things or i mean what's what's that looked like and is that playing um, based is that listening based
2: uh initially it was tough in general um i guess this it's, it's cover is running the gamut you mm-hmm. know we've uh i've been playing a lot and and you know i kind of wasn't initially then i started got in a mode where i wanted to practice a bunch and um you know, and that's covered a lot of different areas. Like I've, I've definitely gone back to some books and stuff that was inspirational before. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I've also tried to, you know, um, play things like and incorporate new sounds and stuff that, you know, just kind of spark a different kind of inspiration. I've always done that, but you know, I just, I purposely felt like it could kind of lead to some new things or avenues. Um, you know, in this time we're in now. Right. Um, I also, I have, um, you know, I have a lot of like a, maybe a 250 gig card on my phone and have all this music that never made it into like my digital archives from CD. Right. You know what I mean? So I had these crates and crates of CDs that I never imported or never put on my, you know, um, and I don't like doing the Spotify or streaming things a lot. And then some of the records I have CDs I have aren't on those services. So I literally just maybe in the last couple of weeks spent like two or three hours every night like importing all these old uh records. But not even stuff that's not like I stuff that I just used to listen to a lot and didn't have in my computer, like the um Miles Davis live at the plug nickel box set yeah. or you know the Cold Train Live at the Vanguard box set, like stuff I just never took the time to put in there. Right. So I put, or even like old Weckle records, you know. I had to put like <laughs> Master Master Plan wasn't in my uh, computer, you know. Right. And I used to live by that record, so um I sat here in, my, in the office and just I would put, bring a crate up, uh, you know, and then just go through the crate. Like if it took two days, whatever. I spend a couple hours each night. And um, in doing that, you know, I would end up like, oh, wow, I forgot about this. And I would listen to some of the stuff while I was importing, like these old records that um, were such a part of me, my formative years as a musician. You right. Know? So um, that was really inspiring. And I think, um, you know, listening is a, is a a huge form of practice, too. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed, like, even though I was doing that kind of consecutive thanks and I hadn't gotten to the drums as much when I did. It was like, oh, wow, like, I feel like I have been practiced. Like, mentally, it felt like I had been, you know, working on some stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, Isn't it amazing
1: um, how, like, if if you go back to the the music that you were heavy into, um, like, like during your formative years, like, mm-hmm. when you were a teenager or when you were in college, um, how, like, you listen to that drumming and, and you realize just how much a part of you it still is. Like, dis- despite all the teachers you've had since then, despite all the influences and all the gigs you had since then, like those early influences are just so deep rooted. And you're like, yep, that's the sound in my head still.
2: Right. <laughs> exactly. And another thing that happens for me, too, in addition to that, is that like things that, um, how can I say it? They might have seemed, uh, like crazy difficult mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you it's a, it's a sign of growth because you listen to it you're like wow i don't even have to think i understand that now i know exactly yeah. what that is and when i was coming up it, i was like what is this you know but now <laughs> i'm like oh okay i know exactly what's happening in this like either a metric modulation or yep. or something it's just like wow I, I can i understand this at a way deeper level than i did uh when i was coming up yeah know? yeah um, that's been fun and that's it's been i've been getting a lot of inspiration from that so now that i have it all like i put it on my I put it on my phone and it's on my laptop so like i have these um these like blue note editions of these uh, sono speakers that they gave to all their artists for a minute Oh, cool and um i just i've been playing all this stuff through the house like you know more than i was more than watching tv lately which has been great
3: mm-hmm. you know?
2: and then i have the stuff in my phone so i can play it in the car it's just like you know, all of this music that I hadn't thought about in years and it's, it's inspiring in a different way now.
1: Yeah. Do you find that you have kind of more bandwidth to listen to music now that you're not playing as much?
2: Maybe, maybe that's the thing, you know, and I, I feel like I know, you know, uh, I feel like that's, it's kind of related to all the social stuff that's going on too. Like there's, there aren't as many distractions right now. You yeah. Know what I mean? So there's a lot of time to kind of focus on things that we kind of maybe loosely focus on or you know maybe things that would benefit us that we get to focus on way more now right and um you know i definitely feel like i've been listening to whole albums like i listened to you know like probably three or four the nights from the plug nickel like just like, boom, boom, boom. And I'm just like, man, I, when's the last time I've listened like this to yeah. a whole record or a whole set of music, you know what I mean? From a band. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like that's part of it, you know, having a little more mental space to to kind of do it.
1: Right. That Plug Nickel stuff is bonkers.
2: It's crazy, man. <laughs> like, it's so amazing. And like, it it like uh, It's so modern and so futuristic. It's yeah. still futuristic. You yeah. know, like, it, it's, it's really crazy. And I... I, had to I used to, it's one of those things I used to listen to all the time,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: then it's just like I it will come on. I'm like, oh, I remember this Wayne Solo, and then like you know singing along. But then I hear something different that Tony played that I never realized before. You know, it's like yeah. you hear it in a, in a new way, especially music like that. Like it's always new, but yeah, um, now like you said, with more bandwidth and more uh, and and growth as a, a musician and a drummer, like you just hear things differently. So.
1: Anytime I hear that anytime I hear that I can't get past uh Tony's uh you know, digga digga ding, digga dang, digga digga, digga dang, dig it in, dig it in, digga, diga dang, ding, dig like. I have I have trouble I have trouble just like paying attention to anything else because I'm still just like how, how it's like it's it's crazy. And then they're doing some really
2: like you know, some really advanced like Time modulation stuff too, you right. know? Like where Ron Ron stays here and Tony starts playing like a you know a dotted quarter against it, and is like locked in on a separate. And Ron's just steady, right. like They were playing with some some stuff that you know.
1: And Herbie was with like, both of them somehow.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and comping with the soloists, and then you know they would just make a turn. Like it's it's pretty amazing. Like yeah. some you know that 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 was captured with that band. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, is is Tony one of your guys? Has he been one of your he guys? He was,
2: but Tony was a little late. But he's definitely been one of my guys. He was. I mean, I would say not later, but he was later than Elvin for me. Elvin was kind of like one of the first guys I gravitated towards. Yeah. Um, and that triplety kind of loose kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of got to Tony after that, but he's been one of my guys for a while. Like, yeah, really yeah
1: <laughs> definitely <laughs> one of my guys um and you're the you're the the son of musicians correct like you i am this is your blood yeah. type you grew up in i
2: i did it wasn't really forced on me but it was just it was around you mm-hmm. know what i mean my parents uh, my dad's a drummer and my mom um was like a piano and choral teacher you know they both taught both taught music for a while um and then became, like, principals and administrators and stuff. But my dad was my high school band director. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I kind of grew up, you know, he was. The, um, he used to play drums at our church. And then I started filling in for him loosely, you know. Um, and, yeah, so it, it was around all the time, you know. So I was just, it, you know, it wasn't really forced on me, but it's, like, what I wanted to do.
1: Right, know? right. And, and when it became what you wanted to do, um, how did they how did they react? I mean, I would imagine they were supportive, but did they try to steer right. you towards certain things? Was there any rebellion in you musically?
2: Not really. Like, uh, they, they were open to whatever, you know, cause my dad like played a lot of funk stuff and, um, you know, my parents, uh, they're from South Carolina and they moved to New Jersey Crazy story that Bernard Purdy—he's my godfather. So is he really? <laughs> uh, he's my godfather. So my parents moved to New Jersey because of Bernard Purdy, and hmm. they lived with him for like their first two years wow. when they were up here, young couple, um, and got they were married, and then I came along. And um, but he had Purdy had like a school of percussion at the time, right? Um, like before the Drummers Collective, it was kind of like the collective, and it was in the Atlantic Records building. Mm-hmm. So my dad came up and. Um, he was like the head of the faculty there. So, um, like he knew everybody, like uh, Garibaldi was teaching there for a while. And, uh, you know, Jack D. Jeanette used to come through and crazily enough, Paul Siegel, the founder of drummer, Col- drums, collective and Hudson music took lessons with my dad while he was at that school. Wow. So I know him from, you know, it's crazy that I have this career now and then know all these guys that, and, 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 you know, a lot of them knew my dad. So, um, but yeah, so my dad used to play a lot of different kinds of music. He used to sub for the, uh, you know, the stuff band and sub for stuff with Purdy. And he was also into, um, arranging and composing. So mm-hmm. he, he would do a lot of stuff like that for, um, Purdy would hook him up with work, like on scores he was working on or, or, rec- you know, record dates. My dad would write the string parts, but he plays drums. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, you know, they, they weren't really whatever I wanted to do, they were kind of supportive of, you know what I mean? they uh, and mu- Especially music types, you know, they were heavy into church and gospel music, but it wasn't like that was all I could do, you know what I mean? Right. Because of um, my dad's background and the career he had, you know, he kind of, he was playing, it was kind of that, okay, this music thing is kind of starting to work out, but I also have a young family and a kid, so I kind of, you know, maybe I'll do some loosely le- loose teaching here. And then that turns into a career because of the consistent bread. And, right. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of, he kind of led that. Well, he always still played and it still had all those connections, but he kind of went more into education mm-hmm. and, um, you know, found a lane there, but uh, you know, the touring part, I guess, you know, he lives vicariously through me. You know? <laughs> you know, yeah. But, uh, no, they've been super supportive and, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like you have to do this but it what it was like okay well if you want to do it then we're going to do it yeah. you know what i mean like this. yeah we're going to you going to you know play in the school band you're going to do this but it wasn't like it was forced on me i kind of wish it was a little more like i wish my mom plays piano and i struggle with piano in college man so i wish like she had made me take piano lessons i might have hated it at the time but in hindsight i'm just like man like my mom plays piano I should play the piano better
1: than I you know better than I do <laughs> so yeah, but, yeah yeah um so you so you went to college mm-hmm. where at uh
2: I went to two so I went to Delaware State with well, college is now Delaware State University mm-hmm. at the time which is a historically black college in Delaware and then I went to the new school oh cool. Um, okay. and then while I was so crazy story uh I always played drums, but I I, uh, went to college. I played saxophone, like from middle school to um, high school and college too. So I was always playing both. Like I was in a drum line, snare drum in a drum line, but I played sax in the jazz bands a lot of times. It was so I went to college as a saxophone major because they gave you more scholarship money for horns than drums.
1: What kind of shit is that? I know
2: it's crazy. Like, oh, we got a lot of drummers, but we need horn players, so right, right. we'll give you more scholarship money for that. So I went as a saxophone player, um, you know. But I always played drums, and it was always around. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stopped, but then I started. Like the sax always felt like work, you know what I mean? I liked it, <laughs> but it always felt like I was working, yeah. you know. And then drums was just like, wow, I love this. And it, it, you know, it kind of came back around. There was this band at college that. Had a drummer, he started flaking out. And I was like, like, I'm, um, you know, even in high school, like, I would just learn this stuff from my dad that I didn't know was advanced stuff. So my friends that played drums were like, what is this, like, Independence Patterns or Jim Chapin's book? You know, he would show me things and I would just tap it out on the table with a rise simple pattern. And then my friends were like, how do you do, this? you know, I'm like, I don't know. It's just something my dad showed me, you know, not right. knowing what it was. Right, you know? right. So in college, uh, that band, it was like, I was like, I think I'm better than this drummer. And he was flaking out. So my friend was like, man, just come to rehearsal. And, you know, so I came to the rehearsal and they were just like, man, like, you know, so I kind of started taking over for this drummer. <laughs> and that was it. I, I got a refund check from school with time for my scholarship and I bought a drum set. And I, it was like eight hours ten out a day. Like yeah. just all, that was it, you know, once I did it and it, it, I, was, I was hooked from then, you Wow. Know? and I had a friend um who played drums who was really like really good but he was a kid that um like he grew up heavy in church so he didn't want to play anything other he didn't want to play any secular music at the time you know what i mean but he was amazing like that's how i found out about wetball from because he was playing like we were like 17 18 and he was playing like master (laughs) plan note for note like the first you know like tower of groove or whatever that first record first song was yeah um he would be playing it like like the record, and I was like, "Man, what is like? I don't even understand how you play this around the, you know." Mm-hmm. So I got you know got the drum set, and and that was it, you know. So, cra- how I got to the new school was my last year at Delaware State. Um, legendary trumpet player Donald Byrd mm-hmm. became the artist in residence. So. At the time, I didn't know the significance of who he was for a little bit until I had research and all the records he had been on with Train, and I didn't know all of that when I first met him. But yeah. you know, he would have office hours in his office, like starting at midnight. So we would starting go starting at office, midnight. Starting at midnight, <laughs> so we would go in there from like midnight to four. Me and a couple, like maybe four other serious musicians that were in the music department, and he would play cassette tapes of like live Cold Train that he recorded and like. You know, where train and Elvin would just be playing like the whole side of the tape, like the band would just drop out and just be one side of the cassette was just Train and Elvin like and you hear Donald bird talking in the background like it it was crazy, <laughs> right. but um he would do that, and like he would have us play standards and teach us about music like on his own, like late at night mm-hmm. um and it was amazing, you know, just getting that from from somebody like that, you know, and why do you um, think he
1: did that at midnight like was that was that by design?
2: He was just one of those dudes that was late. You know what I mean? He was just he was still on that New York schedule for yep. he'd probably been forty years, fifty years of being on that schedule.
1: Right. You
2: know? Um so yeah, he would show up and we would go in there and he just loved talking to us, man, and just hanging with us. And um I got towards the end and you know, my parents were music like school teachers. I I didn't know how to become a working musician or whatever, you know, I thought I would just teach because it was a music education program. Right. I thought I would just teach and play on the side. Like my dad. Um, so Donald bird was like, man, like, what are you thinking about doing after school? You know? Uh, and I was just like, I don't know. I was going to teach. And he was, he was the one that was like, man, you should try and do this. Like, you know, like you have a chance to, you know, meet the right cats and, you know, you should go to New York and, and my family's in Jersey. So it made sense. Mm-hmm. he so he hooked me, he had he had been on the faculty at the new school kind of when it started. Um, so he still had connections there and made some calls. And uh, you know, I came up to New York and yeah, tried to do it, <laughs> you know, it worked out.
0: Our snare drum feature of the week is the buyer four x 15 performed by Nashville session player, Mark Beckett.
1: I'm especially interested in, in people who moved to New York, people who live there, people who've made their career there. Um, mm-hmm. What, what, What was like that first year or two, like in New York, um, you know, coming from, coming from, uh, Jersey or, or, you know, Delaware, kind of a smaller environment. I mean, New York is just the Mecca, um, that'll chew you up and spit you out. So, uh, did it,
2: (laughs) I mean, it was, so I've always been like a personable kind of guy. Like I have no problem going up and talking to people and meeting people and, you know, Rob Glassberg calls me like the mayor of the New York scene. Cause I like, <laughs> I, I know everybody I go, you know, so right, right. I, um, but maybe like a half a year before I finished school, you know, once I decided like, Oh, I'm gonna give this a shot. I had started, uh, from Delaware. The, the school was in Dover. So maybe an hour from Philly and then like two hours home to mm-hmm. Jersey and New York. I had the benefit of my family being in Jersey. So I would drive up on the weekend sometimes, well, a lot of times to see music, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? To like go hear music and to go to jam sessions. So there was a lot of jam sessions happening in the city at the time. So I would just come up um, and there were jam sessions in Jersey too. That's where I met Jonathan Blake, who's like one of my best friends and um, a ton of musicians at the, at this uh, jam session, Tyshawn Sori mm-hmm. um, at the, at this jam session called the, at the, at a place called the Peppermint Lounge in Jersey that I used to go to all the time. And I would come up to go to this session in New York at this place called the Dean street cafe where all the Brooklyn cats would hang. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I met Nashi Waits there. I met, uh, Roy Hargrove there. Like everybody would be hanging out, like just, you know, and yeah. I would just go up and play and probably sound horrendous, <laughs> but you know, I, I did it. And, um, so by the time I finished there, I, my parents had just gotten a new house and they had an extra room. So I stayed there, you know, and then I was like going to the city. So, um, I don't know how people do it when they're just like, I'm going to go to New York and just be a musician, pay this rent, try and lit. like I I didn't have that experience. Thank God, because I don't know how I how it would have worked. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Trying to just jump into the jungle. And I kind of had a middle ground, you know, where I wasn't really paying rent because I was in school and staying with my parents. And I, you know, I had time to work and I had a car and it was just a different you know, experience for me. And I was a little, you know, I had already done school. So it wasn't like I was an 18 year old just right. jumping into New York, you right. know? Um, but it still, you know, it still had its challenges. I mean, I did plenty of gigs with, you know, people who have Grammys now for tips and for $20, 30 and, you know? Yep. <laughs> so, yep. um, you know, it still has its challenges. Um, a lot of it is like you know, meeting the right people and being in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a lot of that, you know, I was blessed in that way. Um, But yeah, I I was fortunate that I kind of got to New York at a time where there were a couple things happening. There was still like an amazing scene. Like, I don't know if it's like this now, but like the, the people that were people that you admire and had records from and you know they were still playing a lot in new york like i could still go to the zinc bar and see jeff Tane watts play every monday almost, Right? you know what i mean? right. I could still go to smalls and see um samuel hell brian blade and joshua redmond play trio every tuesday yeah. you know um bill stewart larry goldings and peter were still playing almost once a month you know or at right. least somewhere you know what I mean? So it was still, like, these heroes were accessible right. at the time. I don't know if it's like that as much now. Like, you don't get, like, like who would be the heroes for kids now. Like, you don't get Robert Glassford playing the Smalls, you know, consistently. Or playing at the Zinc Bar where right. kids can see him. You know what I mean? Again, like, so yeah, it's just and like Mark
1: Giuliano Mark uh, will do, like, a week stand at Village Vanguard or something. Exactly. But it's, but but it's, it's not- like it's not consistent and you're talking like mid 90s right like this is mid this is late
2: 90s early i got to i consider myself getting to new york like 97
1: okay cool you know what i mean so
2: it was like i mean you could me and robert used to go see kenny kirkland play at this little italian restaurant up the street from the new school (sighs) with with Tane. uh playing on like a a Remo rims kit, like, and you know what I mean? Like it was just like, it was just like random stuff like that was just all the time, you know? And so I feel like it's a little different now. There's still great music, but you don't get that, you know, those guys, like you could see McBride, Christian McBride play all the time or go Mm -hmm. see, uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel was playing somewhere all the time, you know, like it was just, it, it was just a different time. And, um, that was really beneficial. And then I got to school at when I got to the new school, the group of people that I got to the new school with were like amazing. Like we created our own scene, you know, everybody was playing with everybody and, you know, Mike Moreno and Robert Glasper and Bilal was there. Mm-hmm. And, um, John Ellis, Casey Benjamin, who plays sax and Robert Glasper's exp- experiment, band. band. Like, yeah. There was just so much in that class when we came in and literally from the day we met, um, we, we made the goal of like playing with each other all the time, playing in ense- ensembles and, um, you know, Oh, what are you doing now? You have class? No, there's a room open. Let's go play here. You know, let's find a bass player and go play. you know, it was just like that all the time. And right. then we would leave school, go play it. This club Cleopatra's Needle for like twenty dollars, and then you know, like,
1: <laughs> go yeah. to
2: this open mic the Roots had every week, and you know, it was just like there was just so much. That's what I've on. heard
1: about the new school that it was just like between between the curriculum and the faculty and the fact that it's just in Manhattan, it's just full immersion twenty four seven, right? Um, right, and it sounds like you had you had some freedom to sort of design your own curriculum, and I think in some cases, like choose your own teachers, right? Isn't that the, exactly. sort of the case? With, like they don't have a faculty, like you get accepted to the new school and you're like, I want to study with this guy. And right. that's, you know, that's like, it.
2: Yeah. You have to, you have to kind of get out of what they call proficiency. So like, if you can't, you know, in your audition or in a test or whatever, if you have, you have to sight read, play some stuff, whatever. If they don't think you're ready to pick your own teacher, then you have a list of people that you, can study with you Mm -hmm. know what i mean but if you're out of that and i say i think at the time it was like you get like nine lessons a semester you know Mm -hmm. so you can pick if you were in proficiency all of those nine had to be with the same person who was on this list excuse me if you were out of it you could pick, you know, who you wanted to study with. And it was like, you could, the way it was set up at the time was like, you had to do six lessons with one person. And then the other three, you could break up with whoever, mm-hmm. but if you're out of proficiency. So like one semester, my six lessons were with Lewis Nash. Cause I knew Lewis, I hit him up. was like, can you fill out this paper? And, and blah, blah, blah. And then I did the three lessons with like some, you know, some people I just wanted to get with. I did a lesson with a base, with a bass player that I noticed was really into like, um, his name's Johannes Mueller, And mm-hmm. he you know, played a lot with Ari Honig and, and Kenny Werner in the trio. And yeah. was re- really solid on metric modulation stuff. So I wanted to play some stuff with him just to, you know, so you can pick it up like that. But I mean, I studied with El Negro for mm-hmm. a semester. Um, I said, stu- yeah, I just, it was, you could pick who you want. And um, it's, not, it's not so much the same with ensembles, but, you know, you can make, if you were out of this proficiency, like you and a group of kids can make an ensemble as long as everybody agreed that who was in it and who they want, you know? So every semester I was in like a crazy ensemble with like Robert and Marcus Strickland. And, you know, we were, we would put our own ensembles together, like kind of, I mean, it was kind of clickish too. Cause we didn't want sure. sad people in our ensemble. So it was like, no, like, like let's get this, you right. know, like put everybody in here <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, um, you know, some other times the school would be like, well, we have to put this person in our ensemble." We'd be like, oh, boy, like, you know, but uh, yeah, it was just like a really fertile environment, man. And then the faculty just in general, you know, I had like a um, Art Blakey ensemble with Charles Tolliver. Wow. Legendary trumpet player. Yeah. And, uh, I had a train ensemble with Reggie Workman. you know, who's on the live at the Vanguard (laughs) box set. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know where else you can do stuff like that. You know, like, yeah. So it's it's just, you just have a wealth of knowledge there and it's kind of, you know, it gives you room to kind of, if you want to do it, I know people that go there and kind of fart around and, and don't get anything out of it. And I don't know if it's the same now, but when we were there, like we took full advantage of how it was set up and, and what was, you know, available. Like, one semester, that ensemble we talked—I I talked about were, it was me, Robert, Keon, Harold, um, John Ellis. Bilal was in there. Mark Kohlenberg was the other drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buster Williams was our teacher. You know, so Buster Williams played bass with Miles and everybody. You yeah, know, yeah. he's teaching us in, a, in this ensemble. He kicked our bus that semester too. But, um, you know, because we thought we were the hot kids in, in, in the school. And he would just, like, you know, just go in. <laughs> like, he stopped me playing a ballad one time. He was just like, "Like, why would you? Why would you play that right there? Like, what were you thinking? Right, that made you play." And I just like, uh, I don't, you know. But right. it was good. It made you think about, you know, choices. Right. You know. But a- anytime
1: it, I ask myself that question, like if I play something and I, you know, listen back to it and I don't like it, I ask myself like, "What? What were you thinking?" And the answer right. is usually, <laughs> "I wasn't." exactly i was just moving
2: (laughs) i just played something just you know but right it was like he he was all about like be zoned in all the time like everything you should play should come from something so the solo was played or whoever's conference played or the bass player played not you know what i mean so yeah um but just being in that it, it changed my life honestly like just being there was I kind of consider that the launching pad for like my whole career, you know, going to the new school. Right. I mean, other than meeting Donald Byrd, like coming to New York and being there around all those people, that was that was it. You know, like
1: yeah. So as as someone who is the the son of educators and someone Mm -hmm. who has gone to, you know, kind of a small state school, you know, probably run of the mill music program. And then a very rarefied, kind of specialized Uh, music school what's Mm -hmm. what's your perspective on on music education and um i I did an interview with charlie hunter last week and he referred to the music education industrial complex (laughs) right i i yeah i Um, I get that i get that you know we've, we've done almost 300 interviews on this podcast and we've interviewed guys who went to college and got doctorates and and people who dropped out of high school um right and, and I think, you know, there's, there's tremendous good in music education, but there's also tremendous disservices, um, in some sure. ways, what's, what's your perspective on, um, you know, the place of music education and its, its value, um, in terms of forming a professional career. Right.
2: I, I, I mean, I've kind of, like you said, I went to a small school that had really run of the mill, like music education program where it was like not very many serious kids Mm -hmm. um at the when i got my drum set they didn't even have really have a drum set i can practice i used to have to take my drum set into the music building and practice you know which was kind of cool because it would make me practice longer because i didn't want to schlep this stuff twice you know i would just stay in there all night (laughs) right right Uh, (laughs) um and then i you know i went to the new school where it was just like it's rare air there. You know what I mean? It's super rare that to have that kind of faculty, have the level of musicians I was around, you know, and, and and I guess some of the schools in New York and Berkeley can be the same thing. And some Mm -hmm. of the music schools around the country are similar. Um, I feel like it can be a a necessary evil. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like it, it it serves its purpose. Like if you're, it's a kind of, I know for me, it's the kind of good middle ground. It was my excuse to be in the city. Right. You know, I was working on another, on another degree and, um i met people and you know it wasn't just like okay i have to be out here trying to to work you mm-hmm. know what i mean like i have this other thing that i'm trying to do and it was cool for that um i feel like yeah i feel like a service purpose i do feel like after school there is like a de-learning process that has to take place yeah. in a way where you have to kind of you know it's the same thing like where you if you sit all day and I, this is part of my practice routine. Like if I'm trying to work on something and like say it's a phrase or something and I'm practicing and I play it like hour and a half, two hours after I'm done, I have to play something just open and free and melodic to clear my mind
3: mm-hmm.
2: of all of that stuff, all that repetition. Because if not, then I go. I've had it where I've gone to a gig and I'll play a solo and I'm like, oh, this is what I was working on that day, which I don't want to happen. I don't want to hear like, oh. I can tell what you were working on today. Like, that shouldn't be weird. Your your solo
1: sounds like your practice session.
2: Exactly. (laughs) You know, and I think that's what happens in education. Like, you have to clear your head of all of this crap that's been put in and realize, you know, that everything you've learned isn't really necessary for you or isn't really right or Mm -hmm. wasn't even, you know, you have these teachers that, this is the only way to do it. And you're like, Oh, that's dumb, you know, but you don't realize it until you're out sometimes.
1: You yeah. So, I think that's yeah. my, that's one of my biggest beefs. And I, I've never, I've never sort of uh, put my finger on it in, in the way you just did, but it's one mm-hmm. of my biggest beefs with, with music school and and jazz programs in particular is that I see, and I've, I'm sure I've been guilty of this too, when I was in music school, um, right. but I see players out at the jam session or at the gig or whatever, um and i don't feel like they're in the room with me i feel like mm. they're still in the practice room with themselves for sure cuz right. that's where they've been living i mean it's not their fault necessarily but they think right. that that you know the, that the practice room is the end all be all to what's going to happen to them and what they're going to do outside yeah right they don't yeah. they don't see it, they don't seem to see it as as the um you know in in service to what they're going to do outside um, mm. And there's no de learning. Like you said, there's no de programming. Their, their head yeah. is still in the practice room doing the spelling. Bee. Right. Um, and, right. and I think that's, that's one of my main problems with, with music programs in general is that they, they really, um, inculcate students <laughs> in, in the right. academic environment. And then when they're out in the real world, it's, it's hard to relate to them in any way exactly you know
2: yeah so i i think that's you know and i i feel like people have to realize that especially coming out of school you have to be open to like oh you know what maybe everything i learned was wrong you know but i'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case you right. know what i mean but you have to reevaluate and examine you know what this stuff is and what these philosophies were that you learn because they're based on a person you mm-hmm. know what i mean and maybe that's not your Philosophy. Maybe that style of playing isn't for you. Maybe, you know, what that person was so adamant about, you get in the real world, it's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Like, why? That's not how it works out here. You know what I mean? I need to figure out how this is how the real world works as opposed to how school works. Right. So, I, I like you, you know, I see that that doesn't happen a lot or it takes longer for some people. I've seen people that, um, had potential to have good careers and didn't because they couldn't figure that part out Hmm, you know they couldn't get out of that that school mode um so yeah you know i think it depends on the person and the kid too like it it was beneficial for me but i always knew like um you know in addition to the teachers like you know andrew surreal and and uh you know, all the legends that are at the new school, you do have some that that you, that just being real, teach because they didn't really do much career-wise. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they're there for that. And you kind of have to understand that and balance. And those teachers were always the hard ones. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> always. Like, the cats that were working or the heck careers, they were kind of loose and, you know, they, were, they would be on you, but it wouldn't be like, you know, the guy that teaches ear training that, you know, didn't really have a good career and it wants to you know stick it to all the kids that are struggling with ear training you know what i mean like yeah so you have to kind of you know under realize what that balance is and then especially when you get out you kind of have to be like okay if need be i can throw all i need to throw all of this away to figure out what i need it's another schooling to learn how to work with cats yeah you know what i mean like a whole different thing so if need be, you have to be willing to be like, man, everything I learned was nonsense, <laughs> and now I have to get this whole other set. I mean, but then, uh, realistically, maybe 60%, 70 you know what I mean? You could keep a lot of it, but you have to be willing to throw it all away if you need to to make make a career you right know I mean? right and and,
1: and and not that stuff you want lo- that you learned was like wrong just rec- exactly recognizing that it does not apply here how it's not applicable <laughs> right. here it's, it doesn't yeah exactly yeah yeah it's cool what you said about like the the academics versus the other teachers who were like you know had careers mm-hmm. but were doing this teaching thing because somebody right. wanted to study with them and i've I've had both kinds of educators in, in my life and, you know, I don't, I don't want to put one above the other, but I, I, I feel like academics tend to be like, here is what you need to do. Here is how Mm -hmm. you do it. And, and those are tried and tested methods and, and there's a lot of knowledge in there. Whereas the other guys will be like, I don't know, what do you think? figure it out right
2: right (laughs) and i think that's indicative of problems with education in this country in general is that it's like one size fits all and this is how you figure out this equation and this is the only way to do it but it doesn't give room for personality or improvisation you know what i mean so uh you get that in, in music schools for sure like okay and I, I, I get it. You know, a lot of it is based on this is I teach this class. This is how I did it. This is how I teach it. Right. This is what you should do. But I think there should be a lot more room for, um. oh, you figured it out this way. If that's easiest for you. Cool. You yep. can work with that method. Not, oh, this is how you get to a two five one. This is the only way to do it. No, like, oh, you fit. Wow, that's interesting. That's. Stay with that. You yeah. know they, that's not what it is. A lot of times, you know,
1: I feel like so, I had a, um, I had a missed opportunity in this regard because I I went to grad school at uh, University of Missouri Kansas City where okay. uh, Bobby Watson ran.
2: Bobby the, Watson's there, yeah. Oh, who yeah. I played with the bunch, right? Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. I,
1: God, he's I, he's one of my favorite humans and musicians. Right. Ever. Yeah. I, ended, I worked with Bobby a lot. That's yeah. funny. Um But the way Bobby taught, there were like there were three different levels that you could mm-hmm. sort of get with Bobby at. The first one is you just show up, right? Like okay. you show up to class, you show up to Big Man and Bobby will just sort of feed you, right? He'll, you. he'll just throw knowledge at you. And and right. that was the level I was at, right? Okay. The the level above that, the so there were two levels above that that I didn't have the wherewithal or the maturity or whatever to to get to. The level above right. that is if you go to Bobby and say, "Bobby, what do you think I should work on?" Like, "You know me mm. now." what What do you think I need to be doing? Who should I be listening to? and he and then mm-hmm. he'll he'll kind of like tailor it a little more and according to your personality and your tastes and your whatever. And I did a gotcha. little bit of that. But then the ultimate level that a few of my uh, classmates got to was if you go to Bobby and say, I've got this concept. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to write this tune. I'm I'm hearing this mm. thing, and that's when Bobby would like dig in and be like, "All right, wow. let's get after it, man." Wow. Um, so I think with with educators in general, I think with a lot of them, there's that, um, there's that multi level. Like, you know, how how much do you want to do for yourself? The more you'll do for yourself, and the more. Um, sort of uh, awareness you have about what you want to do then a great educator will dig in even more
2: like oh the more I'll open it I'll show you this okay you want to do this we'll go this way yeah right yeah yeah right
1: did you get that experience at, at the new school with
2: I mean I did like uh I don't know so much as with like just my general classes. I had it with person with teachers, you know right. what I mean? I feel like John, John Riley teaches that way.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, and he was, it was just real like, okay, you know, what do we want to do here? What do you, what's your level of seriousness? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What is, how, how do you want to approach this? And then once he sees you're at a certain way, then it's like, oh, okay, then we'll go this direction. You know what I mean? He's really open that way. Like, Oh, you want to work out of my book school? We can, uh, you know have you checked them out before blah 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 let's do this mm-hmm. and, or you know would like how do you want to approach this you know or how serious are you really that mm-hmm. was really what it was you know and um you know lewis nash was the same way you know it was just like okay what level are you trying to come in here on like i'll teach you i feel like it would have been like if you just wanted to do the basics and do the bare amount of work and you know, just hardly practice from lesson to lesson. Fine, I'll teach you that way too. But if you know, um, right. but if you come in here, you know, with serious and I think they they like seeing that because that's how they were a lot. The serious ones, anyway. It's just yeah. like wow. Like I was, I was in there like this kid. Um, you know, let me. I'll help him get to You know where I am. You right. know, so uh, yeah, I did. I did. I got a lot of that in my private lessons.
0: Here's David Northrup performing on the six and a half by fourteen buyer snare drum.
1: You've got a resume just a mile long, of course, but the the artist that I associate you most closely with is uh, Esperanza Spaulding. Right um, and you know, I love talking about uh, bassists on the mm-hmm. on the show and just like the the unique relationship that that drummers and bassists have and and all the different forms that can take. And I want to hear about Esperanza in that regard, but she's so much more than a bassist. She's just like this right. brilliant unicorn of a musician. Um, yeah just like people <laughs> i mean people know but they still don't even know
2: what an amazing like musician and uh, she how talented she is yeah
1: yeah, she's yeah so just talk about uh you know how you know you came on each other's radar and and the experience mm-hmm. that you had over the years that you played with her uh we met
2: crazily enough through joe lovano who mm-hmm. i had been working with um prior um I don't remember what year this was. So I went to a jazz camp in like Aspen, and I met Joe Lovano there in '99. So, and then like two thousand, he heard me there and said he was going to call. And I was like, whatever, you know, he's not going to call me, but he did call. Yeah, and we started working in like two thousand, and um, have been working since then, which is crazy. But, you still play with um, Joe? I still play with Joe a lot. That's yeah, it's probably one of my main things. It's been yeah. twenty years now. Um, so we have been playing together a bunch, and then uh, in all different groups. Like I started playing with his non and trio and quartet, you know, he would just hire me for all this stuff. And, um, he told, he, he started, he got this position at Berkeley, like this Gary Burton chair or something. He was the first one to get it. And he, he started teaching there.
1: Right.
2: And, um, he would tell me like, man, there's this girl there. Like she plays bass and she's like amazing. You got to hear her. Like, I'm going to try and set up some stuff for us to play, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've been maybe like a, for, like, almost a year, he had been saying this to me. Um, so that summer, he had a run of, like, quartet gigs, and he put together this quartet with me, Esperanza, and his pianist named James Wyman. And that was the first time Esperanza and I met. And, I you know, I don't remember what year this was. I want to say 06 or somewhere, and I don't know. Um, but we started, you know, playing. And we were kind of, like, the young half of the band, and they were, like, the elder statesman kind of half of the right. band. So... And we kind of like from the first time, like we had a ball, like we, it was first sound check we met and, you know, we hung out after sound check. We were in this little town, I want to say in Connecticut. And then she and I went to get lunch after sound check. Like we just were cool from, from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so we started playing together with Joe and playing like quartet and trio stuff. And then, um, you know, she started telling me like, yeah, I remember we were at the Montreal jazz fest in, uh, she was like, yeah, like I sing and I play bass too. And she had like a little, like her first CD, uh, on on uh, like a little, you know, like a demo kind of CD with the little sleeve. Right. And, uh, she gave it to me and I was just like, okay, like, I, you know, I didn't know what she really did or anything. Um, you know, so that we kept playing after that. And then, uh, you know, she was still up in, in Boston and I think she was teaching there. Mm-hmm. I think she was playing and, you know, teaching right after she graduated. And, um, working on her own stuff and she had a band but something was happening with her the musician the drummer in the band or i don't know exactly what happened but um you know on some of one of joe's gigs she was just like man like you know would would you be interested in doing stuff some stuff with my band and i was just like yeah like of course i you know i didn't know what the music was or whatever isn't it Um, funny
1: how sometimes like band leaders or artists will will approach you very timidly like like they're asking you yeah. out on a date and they expect right. you to say no and you're <laughs> right. like yeah of course sure right. yeah tell me And now. I guess
2: yeah, she's she's <laughs> younger than me too and I had been working you know I kind of had a little name at the time but you know so I guess she was just like uh, I don't know if he's going to want to do this or right. whatever you know like I'm playing with some college guys or whatever but I was just like I don't know I don't like I was like yeah I'm down like let's do it yeah. you know and um so we did some trio gigs and then you know, it came to be time for her to do her first record. Uh, she got signed to Concord or Heads Up or whatever and it was like, I'm getting ready to do this record. And, um, you know, like, would you be down to do it? Mm-hmm. You know, like, would you, you know, we've been playing these gigs, like, you know, would you be down to do it? And I was just like, sure, you know. Um, And at the time, so Chris, she knew, uh, um, Horacio, so she knew El Negro already. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my family and I had bought a house the town over from where we live now, Negro and his wife at the time loved the area. So they started looking. So he ended up buying a house like five minutes from me. So oh, cool. I would be at his house all the time. Like yeah. it was crazy. So, um, she was like, yeah, I think I want you and Negro on the record. You know, I'm gonna have Negro come play on a couple tracks and then, you know, you play this, all the stuff we've been playing on the gigs or whatever. Um, so that was it. And then it led to a bunch of years of us, you know, playing together and, you know, she's like my sister, one of my best friends. And, um, yeah, man, but just like just playing with her is special because um, you know, you have to lock in with her as a bass player and you have to be supportive of her as a vocalist at yeah, the same time. Yeah. You know, and what these, I mean like, and these like, are
1: these are two things that we've talked about a lot because they're right. they're they're subtle, honorable arts, you know, as right. as a drummer, like individually lock in. on their own. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, and now you've got to do it with one person. Right. Exactly. How- who's
2: very like who's like who hears everything is very particular about what she wants. And, mm. uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, yeah, it, you have to be on your P's and Q's to play with Espy. So, it, you know, it, it,
1: and it, when, when it you say, challenging. when you say particular, like what is, what does that look like? Cause there's another thing I'm fascinated with about, about mm-hmm. how, how band leaders and front people, um, like a, what they want and b how they get what they want, how they express that. What did that look like? Yeah. Like, for yeah, yeah.
2: She, it was just, I mean, SP can be tough. She can be tough to, you know, like <laughs> to like, she'll be on you. Like, oh, you missed that hit. Or you you, uh, mm. oh no, like we got to do this section again. Like everybody in the band, not just me, but you know, she like, she knows what's going on all right. the time. like right. and, and it's just like, oh, you know, after the show, she'd be like, oh, this one section wasn't great. You know, like really like self, like analyzing the performance. Right. There. I
1: mean, that's, that's um, someone, who, that's, that's someone who just has a really clear vision exactly in their head he always had a super clear vision yeah. you know what i mean like
2: sound checks would be long because we would be rehearsing <laughs> and going over stuff that you know that you would think like oh we know this and it's like no okay let's we're gonna no play actually
1: you don't <laughs>
3: right
2: right <laughs> um you know so it was challenging but it's super gratifying too when you get it and and, and you know the performances go well and, yeah you know, and then for me too like being at the stage where it was kind of like you know it, it was getting to where it is now you know what i mean right. like the first grammy win was coming after right after you know right before um the this record with the strings happened um mm-hmm. chamber music society right um it was amazing to to be on that that ride you know what i mean with her and do all these things like off the city limits and all the stuff that ended up happening and um we were at we were playing at the jazz standard when she found out uh, she was going to be playing at the uh, White House the Obama thing that she did the Stevie Wonder song right and, uh, so they canceled the night at this like it was just just being around all that was really amazing you know what I mean and she was very um, you know uh, I'm sure there's a little more separation now because of who she is and how busy she is and stuff but she was busy then too but she was really open and you know didn't really. Um, you know, a lot of time artists like keep you out of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, well, I'll just use these guys here. Or, you know, she's like, I want my band. I, I, uh, you know, this, you know, the CEO of BET is having this lunch party at her house and she wants us to play. I want you guys to, come. you know, like it was real inclusive and, and amazing to be around. But yeah. um, her, her as an artist. Um, she's an amazing human being, first of all, just like as a human being, she's incredible. Mm-hmm. But as an artist, like it's super, I don't know. I've been around artists like that are, I think led living legends and geniuses. Like Joe Lovano was like that to me, uh-huh. um, you know, Donald bird was like that. I think Michael Brecker was like that. Uh, you know, uh, they just have this thing that, you know, it's like they live, they live music. Like they are music you know yep. what i mean like you never you're never around joe lovato he's not talking about music or you're not staying down the hall from him and don't hear him practicing in his room all day before the show wow uh you know like all the day I, I remember we played at this place the regatta bar in boston and the rooms are down the hall from the venue like he would be in his room between sets like practicing and come back and play you know Jesus. what i mean i Brecker always had his horn in his mouth, you know. And Esperanza is the same way. Like we would be at breakfast at the hotel, and I remember like certain songs that are on these records that she would be writing, like at at breakfast at the hotel. Like I thought of the song and writing it out and trying to figure out chords, like at in the hotel breakfast. Man, you know what I mean. When she showed up to vent to places where, um, you know, she couldn't travel with her bass. I'm sure she takes it all the time now, but at the time, budget wasn't always right, and she would uh. Whatever bass she was playing, she would have the promoter have it in her room at the hotel. Like she had to have it there, like just to play. She would get in. She'd be like, "No, I got to practice and play." You know, like just nonstop. Can't you know? turn it it off. Is, it can't turn it off. Yeah. You know, and and it's just like that's it, it's you know it's that thing you hear about, and not com- not to compare to those people, but it's that thing you hear about with like Coltrane, or that thing you hear about with those guys like that that just. Constantly, we working on stuff, and not even considering it work. Like it was just part of them, right? And that—that's how she is, and it's super inspiring to yeah. be around that. You know, cause it makes you like, oh man, like I'm not doing enough. Like I should be, you know. I should. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? You right. know, like she, she's here writing a song. Is going to rent a Grammy at, at breakfast on a notepad. <laughs> and now, you know, I'm going to the room to watch Netflix, or like you know whatever. Not yeah. me, not Netflix at the time, but it just pushes you in a certain way. So yeah, just, yeah.
1: Like, and I don't know. I mean, I know. for me, it. it on the one hand, it pushes me, but on the other hand, I, um, especially as I've gotten older, I've I've started to realize like that's just not me, right? I wouldn't it, yeah. I wouldn't be happy if I forced my exactly. I, I would have to force myself to live like that, right? Yeah, For yeah, it yeah. To just be I all agree. music every minute of every day, right? Um, yeah, and I don't think it just happens with musicians. Like I'm in the middle of this, um, uh, the last dance thing about Jordan and the oh Bulls, man, you know who
2: has that? Like who has that? Like not everybody. I don't want it. Honestly, right. (laughs) Right. You know, I've always had kids and a family, so it was like, I couldn't. By the time I started in music, I had kids early, so it was like, I can't. You know, I focus a lot, but I I have to do this and do this other stuff that's around in my world, you Mm -hmm. know, so it's kind of tricky. Like, I was watching the thing, um, uh, what is the movie? Free Solo, about the guy to climb, you know, and it's just like, man, this dude is just like, and you know i was talking to a friend and she was like you know what i don't know if i want that like i just have too many friends i have too like such a social you know like yeah i focus on stuff when i need to but it's like i don't know if i want to get to where that is or if i you know if i have that in right you know so it's yeah it's a definitely a, a special thing um to see you know and inspiring in a way but it's just like okay i'm not going to get there but i can take a part of it as, as inspiration and just that part pushes you to another place, but it's just like I don't need to get to Jordan level of
3: <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, man.
2: it'd be nice, but you know, there's only one Jordan. You right. know what I'm saying? So right. like there's only one Kobe. And he wasn't even Kobe wasn't even he was there. You heard about, but it wasn't even fully Jordan that we know now watching The Last Dance. Like yeah.
1: <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just a different thing. So um there yeah. was a the my, my favorite one of my favorite uh you know, clips or or songs of you with Esperanza is not on a record. It's from <laughs> the duo that you did on uh, the Tavis Smiley show.
2: Oh wow! Look no further. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and, yeah. I mean, that's an old clip by this point. Like you pull it up on YouTube, and it's kind of like you know, pixelated and <laughs> grainy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's it's like I, I talked with Charlie Hunter last week about about playing duo. Right. Because he he does the six or seven or eight string thing with different drummers and how um, playing, you know, playing duo puts some people in a mentality of like, oh, I'm going to play more. Right. But what you did with that, like both you and Esperanza just like played less. And it. I mean, one of the reasons it blows my mind is because all you're playing is a snare drum without the snares and a pair of brushes. That's (laughs) it. Like you're just sitting in the middle of this TV studio with a snare drum just like playing time on on brushes and what what the two of you did uh on that on that tune is just magic i love it i'm gonna post it thank you i'm gonna post it on the (laughs) um the episode page um but was that i mean what just to get like inside baseball for a second what led to that decision for you to just take that minimalist approach well, so she,
2: she was doing that as an encore by herself on tour. Like she was doing it, you know, and I was like, uh, I think it's sound check one day or something. Like she was checking it and I just started playing brushes. I was just messing around like behind her. She was like, Oh, we should do that. We should do that. And I was just like, Oh, I don't know. You know, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's really exposed, you know? Yeah. like." Um, and we started doing it on tour. Like it became part of the set. It was the encore like every night, yeah. you know? So we would, um, you know, our, the sound, the guys would bring the snare and the stool up front. And sometimes we if we got to the point I would just have an extra snare and a, a throne on the side of the stage and they would just bring it out. Right. Um, but yeah, we just, you know, it just became a thing. But we would play other duo stuff like that, just play around and, mm-hmm. you know, just play stuff. Um. And so the 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 way that Tavis Smiley thing happened was that we had she had to do an in-store at Amoeba Music, the record store in, in LA, because you know, the famous record store. Right. Um, uh, and she didn't want to do it by herself, but there was no money, you know, at the time. There, there was so it was just like, Hey, you wanna come do this in store, you know, you you know, we'll cover the room, blah blah blah. I was like, Okay, I wanna stay in LA another couple days anyway. Yeah. Um, so we were going to do the in-store and then she got Tavis while we were out there.
1: Oh, cool. And then
2: she was like, why don't you come do this Tavis Smiley thing? You know, we're just going to play this, uh, cause we actually played two songs. We did a version of that song, Precious, too, mm-hmm. that was like on Tavis's website. We played that duo, and, which was her big hit at the time. And then we did Look No Further. That was part of the broadcast. Um, and she was like, well, why don't you come, you're here. Why don't you come do this Tavis Smiley thing? I was like, okay, like, I- I'll go do it. And, um, so we did that and then Amoeba in store, I want to say either same day or like one day after the other. Um, but you know, I used to sit like the way I learned and used to practice brushes and my, you know, my family can attest to this was like, I used to have this old beat up Kent snare drum mm-hmm. and I had it on a stand in our family room and I would just be sitting watching TV, like working on mostly ballad like brush patterns. You yeah. know what I mean? Just like just in there. Trying to get the longest movement I can get. Like I, I learned a lot of that from Lewis Nash, mm-hmm. um, who kind of gave me a lot of info on playing brushes, and I just studied it. Like I'm a nerdy dude, so <laughs> once I get into something, I'm just like, okay, let me find this old Philly Joe book. How nobody has it? Where can I find? You know, like right. I would copy it from somebody, go to Staples, make a binder, like how <laughs> like, like I was one of those dudes, so yeah. um, you know, I used to I work on brushes a lot. And I had, I, I mean, I wish I did as much now as I did then, but um, yeah, it just turned into a thing. So at Amoeba, I have this video, nobody's seen it. I think Amoeba might have posted or something. but we did a whole set like that. Like we did, um, you know, she had that five, four arrangement of body and soul. Yeah. So we played, and I was just like, she told me what the set list was going to be, and I was just like, oh, uh. like we kind of talked. I was like, I don't know if that's going to work with just brushes. And- you know, but we got it. It's a whole set together. And I was just I, I just watched it recently. It was like, wow, this is a whole nice set of music. And I'm just playing like a snare drum and brushes. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, she's just, yeah, you just, you know, like just being a, She's like a light, man. So you want to kind of kind of step up and just be like, okay, this is going to be challenging, but I'm going to step up and do it. You yeah. Know? Um Yeah. And I don't know, like, because I've seen there was a time where, I think one time, like we were going to try and do uh, Look No Further, just do like drums and um, like a drum, me at the drum set right, and then play it with her. And it just didn't work the same. Like I just felt like I wanted to play more because the drums were there. You know, it just wasn't the same thing. Yep. So it just it had this thing. It became this thing. So it never made it on the album. But on my record, um, Esperanza came and we recorded it because I was like, we've never done Look No Further. I was like, can we do it and put it on my record? So, we recorded it from my album, but the legal stuff didn't work out in time uh. for it to be on the record. So, it's in the can, like, it's a studio recording of it. And she plays this amazing solo. Like, so I, I might put it out on like a free EP or something before my next record comes out. But I was like, oh, we never recorded it. People love it. There's so much video. I was like, do like, you mind if we put it on my record? And she's like, no, she came by the studio and we did it. And it's just, it that's didn't, cool. Like, it was tight, like the legal stuff with release date, it just didn't work out. So we just left it off the album, but I still have it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're waiting, man. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ago, my uh, my co-host Matthew Kraus in Nashville mm-hmm. did uh, a roundtable episode, um, and it would we called it uh, the Black Drummers of Nashville, mm-hmm. and it was with uh, Keo Stroud, Marcus Finney, Jeremy Roberson, Derek Phillips, um, and I'm leaving somebody out. I forgot who it was, uh, but it was basically a discussion among drummers in Nashville. Um, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, they're black drummers in a town and in a genre that is dominated by white artists and and white audiences. Um, we are going to re-air that episode tomorrow. Uh, we're we're recording on June 17th, is it? Um, Right. I think it's 17th. But, um, so we're re-airing that episode tomorrow, um, but I wanted to get your perspective, um, on just in, in light of current events and what this country is going through mm-hmm. in the last month. Um, what is your perspective on, uh, racial justice in, uh, you know, your corner of the music industry, whether that's the jazz world or the New York scene?
3: Mm.
2: Um, so, okay. So for in the jazz world, I think that, you know, this has been an issue from the beginning of jazz, you know, of music, you know, especially in, in that genre. Um, and, uh, you know, from its inception, you know, people have been, uh, you know, making protest music, making music that kind of reflects the times. It's just, it, uh, reflects the issues that we've kind of been fighting against it just sucks that um that the the same issues <laughs> you know keep popping up like yeah. the same reason coltrane wrote alabama you know today is the anniversary of the charleston nine being murdered in the church and right. mother emanuel AME today you right. know five year or four years ago um you know so it's like the same thing you know um i feel like there you know we we've we face it and music has a lot to do with the movement, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and can reflect it. And, you know, you learn what was going on at the time that people wrote stuff and it should reflect the times, you know, like, uh, speaking of Donald Byrd, like his song, Cristo Redentor became a big song in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I feel like that part of it is I'm seeing that a lot, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot to come out, a lot of a lot of inspiring music that comes from this, from the pain and that reflects the times. Yeah. Um, you know, in uh, the I think the systemic thing definitely applies to this music as well too. Is that like the 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 people that control it don't often look like the people that create it. Mm-hmm. You know, or that they are out making it happen you Mm -hmm. know a lot of times um and that's caused in my opinion uh kind of a bias in that some people that do create it or have become the faces of creating shouldn't be you Mm -hmm. know what i mean in terms of you know like who's out there or who's promoted or who's pushed in front of the people blah 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 but That becomes, you know, because of the systemic thing of who runs the labels, who are the big promoters, who run the booking agencies, you know, and who who they gravitate, who own the venues Mm -hmm. and who they gravitate towards and implicitly or not, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes you see a bias in that, you know, Um, and and in the drumming world too, you know, you see it a lot, like who runs the magazines and that reflects who's on the covers all the time. Who hosts the
1: podcasts.
2: <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> but you know, so it, it, it you know, it's a, what we do is a reflection of, of society and, and we kind of push it and, and try and change it. But you know, all of that stuff applies here too. And it's, you know, I don't know how it, I see how it, I know how it changes systemically and in, in culture in the world in general, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just been a problem getting there, but we know how to do it. We know how it can work. It's just people doing it. Um, I feel like it's different now. I do. And even my parents, who grew up in Jim Crow South Carolina, um, you know, say that this feels different with the amount of states that were those protests and the. the multicultural nature of these protests like asking for a change you know that i don't think that's been the case even when dr king was around a depth you you had it on a small scale but not like it is now you know not with this generation so um you know i see how it changes there i don't know how it changes in our industry you know like even um yeah like labels have put out statements but the history of these labels isn't always been equitable towards african-american people you mm-hmm. know what i mean like mm-hmm. you they put out statements but you know uh you know I, i've done a lot of work with what was the monk institute at the time and that's where i did a lot of work with bobby watson and I, t.s monk who's an amazing businessman and drummer and, and the son of Thelonious monk he would tell me like you know i know stories of uh people holding record labels holding people to contracts that were written on cardboard, you know, that didn't like on a, on a napkin, they're holding them to this contract that was written and, you know, get, the families had to fight to get the right, you know, it's just like, yeah. like who's in power, how equitable is it? And, and, you know, we're in an industry that that's built not to be fair in a way. <laughs> I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's just made that way. Well, I mean,
1: and, y- you know, a lot of what you're saying about the music industry, I think is, is being said about, um, police forces or, or law, you know, the justice system in general. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of, of the observation that I'm seeing a lot now, which is that, um, you know, saying, saying, saying that there is systematic racism, isn't saying that the people in the system are necessarily racist. Not at all. And I think like, you know, uh, if, (laughs) if a comparison can be drawn between the police force and the music industry let's just pretend for a minute like but in, in both in both cases you know I, I what i'm hearing is that you know you can there, there does not have to be a single racist working in either of those for mm-hmm. systemic racism to still exist
2: right for racism to exist there, you could, it doesn't matter it's just how the system is built
1: right Right. Right.
2: Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, yeah, I'm sorry if you,
1: no, no, no. I'm just wondering, like, you know, you, you were mentioning like how we, how we go forward, you know, we're aware of it now. And like you mentioned earlier, we all have time to just sit around and think about this shit. (laughs) Exactly. It's in,
2: it's in everybody's face now. And that's, I think it's a blessing that there's no, I mean, yeah, if there's a blessing in a pandemic is that there's no sports, there's no NBA playoffs, there's no baseball, right. There's no, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you don't have those distractions. Now you're home. This is in your face. You have to face it now, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's part of the reason where we are, we are where we are. Orlando Castile got killed in Minneapolis not too long ago. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? The same thing happened, but it just do cycle. It went away. You know, protests happened for a minute. Blah blah blah. This is in everybody's face, and this is like okay, you know, George Floyd was murdered, and why? And you know, like it makes no sense. And I think people are waking up to or have woken up to that now, and and. You know, if they haven't, they slowly are businesses. Are, you know, but it's it's that same thing that you see with businesses. Like, okay, thanks for your statement, but you know, what does your C suite look like? What is your executive board? You know, who yeah. what, the, what, <laughs> what the, who, what chief executive is it? How many are there? You know what I mean? So right. it's like, yeah, what are you going to do to fix that? And that that definitely applies. You know, applies across the board, but it's, especially to music. You know, like it's it's been inherently um made to profit off of african-americans a lot like the you know like Mm -hmm. the foundation of a lot of american music if not all is that experience you know like i've been watching the Ken burns country music special and how it came out of you know african-american people's slate it's just like it's all there so it's been made to but in the same you know how is Elvis Presley more famous than you know whoever like Chuck Berry, yeah, Doug Barry? Like Chuck <laughs> Barry. I, I couldn't think of the name exactly. <laughs> or but, a little you know, Richard. like, or a little Richard yeah. exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's designed to be that way, and it's like you know, it's I, I I hope, and I've seen this some that people are realizing like there's a difference between being non-racist and anti-racist. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, yep. oh no, I'm not racist. I don't. But but if you're okay benefiting from the system that is inherently racist, mm-hmm. then you might as well be. Like yeah. if you're not working to break that down, then then you 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 might as well sign up with the people that that you know are proponents are advocates for that system. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like I think people are starting to understand like, oh there's a difference between oh I'm in this position and I'm not racist, but you got to that position because of a racist system mm-hmm. and it allows you to operate in a racist way just on its nature. Um, what are you going to do to change that? Like what active steps are you going to take to change that? And, um, you know, I, I don't know how that happens in the music industry. I don't know how that happens at record labels, you Mm -hmm. know, because the executives are all, you know, it's very rare unless it's in urban music, which people are getting rid of that term now too. Um, you know, but yeah, for, for years and it, you know, but it doesn't matter I think in our industry, too, like, you know, for, say, like, the label for Blue Note, mm-hmm. like, Bruce Lumball was there for years. Super hip, knew everybody, you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't be able to tell, like, he knew what the real stuff was and kind of was an advocate for that and would mix it up and had a diverse catalog of uh, a family of artists and a catalog of records that he put out, you know, under his tenure. Don Was is the same way, you know, but that's at Blue Note. The Don Was his boss might not care as much about who, you know, who, oh, i like the look of this person. Let's get this one on. You know, there's some artists that Bruno puts out now that I'm just like, okay, like, I get the appeal, but <laughs> like, really, you know what I mean? And I guess there's a fine line between art and uh, commercialization. Yeah, and I mean, everybody's got to gotta keep the that. lights on, you know. You got to keep the lights on. I get it, um, you know, but it's, you know, I, I just, I don't know how it changes in our industry, man. I, I just hope you know, even in the drum companies, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, uh, I had put out a bunch of stuff about Zildjian making a statement and it was like, you know, like what, where are these companies at with all this going on? My friend Aaron Spears had done the same and,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, Zildjian reached out to the, and was like, you know, we're working on something and, you know, some, and then all the other companies started getting on board, but it's just like, I think you have to start realizing like, like everybody benefits from black culture, right? you know, like especially yeah. in, you know, so if you're going to benefit from that all the time, like when, when things happen that affect that and affect the people that create it and that people that are your artists or that, you know, might not be your artists. Like you have to be involved in that part too. Mm-hmm. You can't just sit on the sideline and then be like, Oh, okay, come do this video for us at our place. You right. know what I mean? Like it's, it's not right. So, you know, I think this is brought, brought, the change that needs to happen to a lot of people's eyes, you know, and I think it's, it's it's starting to happen. I don't know what that looks like stepwise for the music industry. You know what I mean? Um, Do you know, do you know what
1: that looks like for you personally and for your family? Like for, for, you know, this time that we've all had to just sit around and think like, have you, mm -hmm. have you thought about different ways that um, you're gonna uh, go back out into the world (laughs) in your, in your industry? Yeah. I, I've never been one to, to, to shy away from,
2: you know, speaking or ta- or playing or writing songs and, and talking about things at my shows and, uh, you know, but I, I feel like, a I've always felt a responsibility to that. You know, like, you know, there's the Nina Simone quote that talks about the art should reflect the times you're in. Like, you know, in my opinion, right. it's always been like, if you're not doing that, like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, if this is, everything's going on around you. You can't ignore it. Um, so, yeah, I, but, you know, I feel like there's there's going to be a lot of like people having less tolerance for nonsense from, <laughs> you know, people that are in power in in, right. in in our music. You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason why I why do I why is my guarantee this? And I know your guarantee for this other person was this or why are you telling me I can only do one night and I saw you do you know when i'll have the same job like th- i think i've never shied away from that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. I, I feel like now even more for myself and everybody there's going to be more um speaking up in a way like you know, right and like, i think this, there'll this, this be
3: cool
1: yeah like more more speaking up in that way but also um more speaking up from the stage like you were talking
2: exactly about. oh for sure for yeah. sure i mean i the, you know there's a song that um it's funny man so i i haven't talked about this but i'm working on a new record and i started okay. it probably sev- 17 2017 and um at the time to- the record is called deferred dreams and radio rahim so radio rahim was the co- the guy killed by the cops and and do the right thing spike lee's movie. Mm-hmm. deferred dreams is a poem by langston hughes um but it's literally there's a song for the charleston nine who the anniversary is today that i talked about and um, you know, Jimmy Green's, there's a song for Jimmy's daughter, there's a, you know, but it was like, I've always wanted to make music that showed that Keon Howard's in the band. He had a song called, um, MB Lament. He's from Ferguson. So he mm. wrote a song for Michael Brown. And yeah. every time we play live, I would talk about and talk about the inspiration and I I could see it would make people uncomfortable, but whatever, you yeah. know what I mean? Like I just, I didn't care. Um, but yeah I think there's a there's gonna be a lot more of that you know and 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 it's gonna be unavoidable because like even without talking about it like people's music um people are gonna make music that reflect the times we're in and it's just you know it's it's gonna be um you're not gonna be able to not talk about it right you know so from the stage or whatever you know I've had people come um I remember after the time I, talk, I talked about playing that song and a lady, a white woman, came up to me after the show and was like, yeah, I don't think you should describe what happened that way and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's how I see it and that's how I feel mm-hmm. it happened, you know? And uh, I think I said something like, and I was being sarcastic and I was like, you know, like I said, it was dedicated to Michael Brown and all of like the other Radio Raheems, it, you know, that seemed to have like a, uncanny knack for being killed by police <laughs> you know and i said that during the show and she was just like yeah i just wouldn't say that you guys have an uncanny knack for being killed by po-. and i was like you know i hope you didn't take that literally but you know that when i talk about it i get upset and it's, that was definitely sarcasm, you know but it it's right. just like things like that you know that i don't think people are going to have much care for how comfortable people are yeah anymore yeah. you know what i mean and that that's what i think one of the big differences will be going forward
1: mm-hmm. and hopefully uh people like that woman um will be uh you know less likely to feel the need to weigh in <laughs>
2: exactly or feel offended or feel you know like just just take it for what it is and and you know, it could it would have been better if she was like, yeah, I understand how you feel like this is, you know, it's terrible. But whatever. Right, you know what I mean? But right. there's a way just listen. To, like just listen and not always, you know, not mm-hmm. be offended and re- argumentative and just accept, you know, this is something I'm learning in, in my life in general for me is like just accept when you're wrong, uh, apologize and try and fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just what it is right. when, it, you know, you just have to recognize that and be willing to do so.
1: Yeah. Well, man, thanks for thanks for talking with me. It was really great. Uh, oh man. digitally meeting you.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: I hope to see you. Hope to see you live again soon. I saw you once or twice with Esperanza when you came through Kansas City. Um, oh yeah, we did come through there a couple yeah, the, times. The yeah. Folly Theater, I think
2: exactly i remember that yeah yeah yeah, yeah
1: such a wow. such a great show um but uh hope i can see you live again before too thank long. you man this has been this has been awesome so yeah hope
2: hopefully we'll all get to do that at some point in the near future yeah you know? at like, some point man other than virtually i know the vanguard is doing streaming now and it's like i don't know when it happens where we go back in a crowd and, and see people play live so i yeah. hope it's doing you
1: yeah. know me too yeah We'll be well, man. We'll talk to you soon. Man, you too. All right. Thanks a lot. There you go. One of the gentlemen of jazz, OB3, Otis Brown Third. Hope you dug that talk. If you go to the page for this episode at workingdrummer.net, you'll see the video we were talking about of Otis playing duo with Esperanza Spaulding. Trust me, you want to give that a look. I also highly recommend you check out our Black Drummers of Nashville episode. Hubert Payne was the fifth member of that roundtable discussion who I could not recall. How could I forget Hubert? Anyway, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up on what we're doing every week. You can keep in touch with us there, too. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and Spotify. And check us out at patreon.com slash working drummer, where there is brand new content from our recent guest, Steve Haas. Next week, Matt Krause talks with Nashville drummer and friend of the podcast, Alan Jones, who has been playing with singer-songwriter Will Hogue. Hope you check that out, and until then, stay safe, and thanks for listening. Cheers.